Dr. Taling. Welcome. Lovely to have you as our thought leader today. Hi, Tammy. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you. Now, first of all, congratulations on your new appointment. Um, have you settled in? No, thank you so much. I wish I was in Geneva, babes, but I received the blessings, ne? You are clearing the path for the ancestors for me to move to Geneva. Let's speak in We claim this. We claim this. Okay, yes, so we're no. all under level three lockdown. Selapa, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but yes, the role, you know, taking a few days for me to settle in. And unfortunately, because of the nature of the work at the UN, um, and because, you know, that, that um, mandate I'm on is on the right to health and any alleged, you know, human rights violations related to that right come directly to me. So you can imagine the time of COVID globally, the pandemic, um, and just also all the other, you know, um, ongoing health concerns around the world continue. And so I don't have much luxury to sit and settle in. I just kind of have to hit the road running, um, and I've done so. So there's been a few work and outputs, um, you know, already that I've done as a special repertoire. And I'd like to talk about the the challenges that come with COVID-19, specifically in the area of, you know, reproductive health, uh, specifically in the area of, you know, sexual rights health, um, specifically for women and under lockdown here in South Africa. Let me give you a moment just to contemplate that uh, for a bit. We'll, we'll take a quick break and, and be right back. It's 19 minutes after 8. We are in conversation with our thought leader for today, Dr. Tlaleng Mofugeng. It's exactly 21 minutes after 8 o'clock. I'm Tamin Gubeni in conversation with Dr. Tlaleng Mofugeng, our thought leader for today. Dr. Tlaleng, asking about the intricacies and perhaps um, the special considerations uh, due to COVID-19 in your area of speciality around uh, reproductive health and, and you know sexual issues, uh, specifically for women during this time. I mean, it was already concerning, right, um, the lead up to the lockdown because we know, um, you know, in terms of crisis, emergencies, um, that those negative impacts and outcomes always disproportionately impact women, children, queer people, you know, people who are in the rural communities who are living in poverty. And so when the lockdown was announced, it was very important for us to be deliberate in how we ensure that sexual and productive health and rights um, are listed as essential services. And part of the monitoring and oversight role that we performed at the time was to actually write to certain MECs in some provinces where it became apparent through complaints and, and, and um, emerging trends that um, some people could not access contraceptives. Um, there were stockouts of condoms that we know in South Africa is something that happens just far too often still. And that, in fact, people were confused as to whether or not they can even leave their home um, to go for their checkup and vaccination of children, for example. So it was very important to reiterate and use social media and other forms of communication to tell people that, you know, sexual and reproductive health rights are essential services, including, of course, issues of safe abortion access. Now, being a special rapporteur for health at the UNHCR, what exactly does that entail? So you are appointed as an independent expert. You are not employed um, by the United Nations and you don't represent the government, per se. Um, obviously, I'm black. I'm a woman. I live in South Africa. So, you know, the lens that I use to view the world is of a black woman feminist. And so those politics will find expression in the work that I do with the United Nations Human Rights Council. My work really entails investigation 
of any alleged human rights violations and those complaints can come from any country or any community in the world. I will conduct fact-finding missions or investigations um, or in research um, in, in, in different countries, what we call country missions. I would also um, uh, prepare a thematic report for the annual um, General Assembly meeting as well as the annual Human Rights Council meeting and then in between um, advise the Human Rights Council on any emerging health trends or health concerns related to rights um, you know, of health care. Now, I understand that you are the first African woman to occupy this position. Is that correct? Yes, I'm the first black person and the first black woman to occupy and the first per- person from Africa. Do you know why it's taken them so long? Well, this is project decolonization, I think, at these global spaces. It really is about time. And I think, you know, people often say, but, you know, stop mentioning this first and this first. It's important to mention it because it locates our struggle within a certain context. And the fact that in 2020, we've never had global advocacy in, in, in at the Human Rights Council that's representing, right, such huge populations of people on Earth such a big continent, and yet our issues have always been brought to the table by other people. It's the first time that we get um, you know, to, to have a seat at the table, and we can talk about decolonization, we can talk about the politics of the UN itself as a system, we can talk about all of those things, but for as long as we are not attacking the beast in terms of, 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 of systems of oppression from all angles, we are going to get slower to where we need to. So we need to be at all spaces, at all levels, working towards justice and working towards um, decolonization. And we have to do it at all spaces that we can occupy. And and I wonder if you've managed to get any sort of feedback yet about the type of differentiation that you would bring into a a matrix of this nature. As you said, your work and your investigative work and whatever you choose to focus on will always embody your psyche, your politics, your background and everything that you embody as an African woman. Has there been something different maybe that you've been able to bring onto the table that your, your peers or your counterparts may have been um, blind spotted to in the past? You see, I'm, I'm in a very interesting space because um, I, I'm a doctor and I seem successful and right, you are now at the UN, but I know for sure that I'm not where I am because I was the most hardworking or the smartest growing up. I know that there are people who could have had the opportunities that I have, who could occupy and do the work that I do even better. But what, did, what they didn't have was access to education. They didn't have a family support that I had. They, they, they were living under fear, right? And they were disciplined to be women who are submissive, who, who are perpetual infants, and whose dignity and autonomy and identity were not affirmed. I know that there are systems in place that are literally designed just for me to not even make it. So the fact that I get to wake up and not just survive and thrive in certain instances is political. And I wasn't uh, shy to, to, to mention that even in my application to the United States, to the United Nations, I'd say to them, I have a lived experience of being a young child 
who knows what it's like to grow up in militarized communities because of apartheid in a Bantustan. But I'm also a young adult, a person who knows what democracy and constitutional democracy can do to protect and advance people's human rights. And I'm also a medical expert. And so I bring all of that with me to the role. And what I've explained to them during the, one of the interviews, because, you know, it was like a rigorous process um, in my interview, was to say to them, I want to center restoration of dignity in my work at the UN. When you read any work that I do as a special repertoire, you should be able to see that because restoration of dignity uh, elevates the discussion beyond just morals, criminality, judgment, religion, culture. It elevates it to say all of us as human have a right to dignity. And what do member states, philanthropists, civil society organizations, and communities in, in large can do to restore people's dignity because we are not vulnerable because we chose it. There are systems in place that are making people vulnerable. Now, Dr. Tleleng, you are a doctor, but you decided to be an activist within your profession. Was it an actual decision, really? Or did you organically find yourself taking up the role of an activist within the medical space? It was organic, um, but, you know, in retrospect, when I look back, um, I do see moments where I was definitely influenced um, to end up the way that I did. Um, after community service where everyone was specializing in, in one other, you know, mainstream medical speciality, I didn't find anything that spoke to me. And I ended up in sexual and reproductive health and rights because I knew that, for example, as a young black girl, there's a lot about the health system and how it interacts with me that I found really not um, affirming. Um, and, and, I, and I used to ask myself, what is the one thing that I can do and do well that would lead to as many positive outcomes for as many people as I can? And, and being an advocate for your patients and understanding the root cause of illness in medicine is one of the principles. And it's those guiding principles that then informed my work and how I, 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 I sort of practice medicine as a science because I know it's biased, I know it's racist and sexist um, and transphobic and homophobic and xenophobic. And so how can I be deliberate as a medical doctor who understands all of these intersections and how medicine itself has no potential um, to be a human rights instrument? And so for me, it was a bit of organic because I was good at talking to young people. I was a young person myself who had questions about sex, sexuality, gender, relationships. And I really did think that that is the one place where I don't only have to be a clinician and be a doctor and see patients all day. I can talk, I can be in broadcasting, health communication, and I can also, you know, work in policy and, and legal reform, which is now where I find myself, um, even at the Commission for Gender Equality, working in oversight and ensuring that, um, you know, we advance and promote human rights and gender equality. So basically you wanted to be every woman. I wanted to be every woman in me. I wanted that woman to find expression and to survive and to thrive in this world. And you know, often people say, on whose behalf do you speak? I speak on my behalf. I'm an activist for myself first because I'm that black person that capitalism extracts from. I'm that it's black person, personal, right? right? It's definitely personal and it's definitely political, right? The fact that I was born in Kwakwa in 1982 and my five-year-old son who lives in Kwakwa today is still passing in a Vascomo during COVID with no water from the tap that's clean is political. It's political. And so we know the drivers of ill health. We know issues of water and sanitation and health outcomes, right? So what more of COVID when it spread 
by lack of hygiene and hand hygiene? What are we saying then to the communities who are rural and poor in this country who still don't have access to water and sanitation? It's definitely political. And what is it that made Taleng, born in Kwakwa, decide to enter into the health and medical space? Oh my gosh, it's such a boring story. I've actually always wanted to be a doctor. I don't know any other profession that I had for myself. And my mother has a very funny story that she tells because around eight years old, which is my first memory of this, when we go shopping, I would be in the first eight aisle choosing all sorts of bandages, colors, cartoons, <laughs> shades, and, and, you know, and used to have to buy Smarties for my tablet box because then I would give, you know, medication to all the kids in the neighborhood. Um, and that's just all I've always wanted to be. Even in high school, after career guidance, I was still like, I don't know what you're saying, but I want to be a doctor. Come and on. that's really just how it's always been. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I, I love that because I really do believe that, you know, we are innately channeled to the things that we are wired for intrinsically. You know, and, and hearing you say something like that, I can pretty much, you know, resonate with that. But as we close off tonight, you are also a commissioner at the Commission for Gender Equality. You mentioned that a bit earlier on. What exactly is your mandate there? Our mandate is very simple. We are supposed to be a constitutional body that defends human rights and constitutional democracy. Uh, we we work to promote, to advance and develop gender equality, of course, being cognizant of the different vulnerabilities and systems of oppression that exist for us in this country that hamper, um, you know, gender equality and to really be a catalyst for private sector, public sector, as well as communities on the ground to for themselves to attain in the work that they do gender equality and to promote um, the ethos and, 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 and our constitutional democracy in everything that we do. Dr. Taleng Mofugeng, awesome hosting you as our thought leader for this Thursday. May you continue doing the great work, uh, certainly leaving footprints wherever you go. Thank you, Tammy.